0: Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Tuesday, October 13th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. What's up with all those people and sea monsters on old maps? Why Peru opened Machu Picchu after seven months for one single man to visit? The supermassive black hole that spaghettified a star and the anti-ad ad club paying influencers to trash talk corporations. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I'm sure you've seen images of old European Renaissance era maps depicting all manner of mythological creatures. Giants and dragons on the land, sea serpents and people in the seas. But what's up with that? Did people at the time actually believe in it? Did the explorers themselves believe that they had seen sea monsters and report it back to the map makers? Well, drawings of various geographic attributes and features or obstacles one may encounter on a journey was commonplace at the time due to the fact that so many people were illiterate, so the illustrations were an informational necessity. But why did so many veer towards the fantastical instead of representing the actual attributes and people of the land they were depicting? Well, I think we know some of the reasoning behind that, but here's a great example of one instance quoting from Atlas Obscura. In southern South America, Spanish chartmaker Diego Gutierrez shows two members of the Tewelche tribe as large giants looking down at an explorer in Tierra de Patagones, or the Land of the Giants. The region, which now constitutes parts of modern Argentina and Chile, was described by Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan after encountering the native Tehuelche tribe in 1520. According to his accounts, the Tehuelches were said to have been anywhere from six to six and a half feet tall, and appeared gigantic to the relatively short-statured Spaniards, wrote Irene Butler in Langley Advance. Magellan said that his men only reached up to the giants' waists. And to prove that he had found giants in the New World, Magellan captured two of the Tehuelches and tried to bring them back to Spain. However, they didn't survive the trip, and Magellan was only left with his and his shipmates' tales of a land of giants. It was given the name Patagonia, which derives from pata, the Spanish word for foot. Magellan's bizarre encounter with giants was later disproven by Sir Francis Drake when he explored Patagonia. He wrote in 1628, They are nothing so monstrous and giant like as they were represented, there being some Englishmen as tall as the highest we could see. End quote. And while the maps were the cause of some misinformation, many of them, including Gutierrez's, weren't intended to actually be used for navigation, but were rather more ceremonial, often promoting propaganda for the nation that made them. And, as von Scribner points out in his book Mer People: A Human History, all of this colonial map-making was happening on the heels of the invention of the printing press. Printed materials, like some of these maps and other various accounts of mythological creatures in foreign lands, were more accessible to the public than ever, leading Western Europeans to have, quoting Scribner, Fully integrated mer people into their cultural, religious, artistic, and imperialist mindset during the Renaissance. End quote. As more and more people legitimately believed in creatures like mer people, there was a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy effect. For those who would never travel abroad, they could easily believe that such creatures existed in far-off lands they knew nothing about. And for those who did go exploring, they expected to see such creatures, and thereby would explain any slightly odd occurrence with a belief in the supernatural as opposed to its more logical cause. And not that I want to give these guys much credit at all, but they were genuinely encountering plant and animal species they never had before. So is it so far off for them to have used folklore they were more familiar with to attempt to explain some of them? Although that argument only goes so far, encountering animals with small differences from their own, like the American female possum, doesn't really explain why Christopher Columbus claims to have encountered cyclops. Quoting again from Scribner's excerpt in Literary Hub, Before the 15th century, Europeans' mermaid sightings were few and far between, and generally rested on ancient stories, bestiary descriptions, and folklore. The 12th century contacts in England and Holland proved most enduring, but still remained tethered to allegorical lessons or religious impulses. As Europeans pushed into strange new worlds filled with mysterious creatures, their interaction with merpeople skyrocketed, both at home and in the mysterious locales they visited. It's impossible to know which influenced the other. Were heightened interests at home driving sightings abroad, or were Europeans' foreign interactions with merpeople leading them to find more of these strange hybrids in their own waters? These heightened 15th century global interactions revealed much about Europeans' evolving worldviews. Not only did Europeans' relationships with mermaids and tritons steadily transcend more religious lessons or folklore in the Renaissance period, they also reflected Europeans' visions of imperial might, natural plenty, and philosophical wonder, End quote. Scribner also notes that mermaids in particular dovetailed well with the distaste for women and femininity that was at a high during early modern Europe, quote, "'Mermaids continued as mascots "'for the defamation of the feminine, "'representing religious traditions "'as well as folk portents of storms, doom, and death,' Perhaps even more overtly, 16th century Westerners often called prostitutes mermaids or sirens, end quote. So like many elements of culture, merpeople and other monsters were enmeshed in the cultural thinking of the European Renaissance as a means of explaining the unknown, as wishful thinking, a convenient metaphorical scapegoat, a whirlpool of cause and effect that thankfully calmed over the years. So this next story was a quick link from org today that I wanted to elaborate on a little bit. Yesterday, Peru opened Machu Picchu, which has been closed to the public since March, for one single Japanese tourist. The man, Jesse Karayama, had been traveling the world since 2019, learning boxing approaches and teaching boxing across Australia, Brazil, South Africa, Egypt, and Kenya, before planning to end his trip at Machu Picchu and then return home to Japan to open his own boxing gym. Visitors to Machu Picchu typically have to apply for a permit to visit months in advance, which Karayama did, but his visit was scheduled for March 16th. And the site closed to the public before he was able to enter. But he had already arrived in the town of Aguascalientes two days prior to his scheduled permit date, and even though the Japanese government was offering emergency evacuation flights out of Peru, Kaniyama said the flights were all too expensive, so he decided to extend his stay, perhaps not imagining it would turn into a stay of seven months. In addition to travel restrictions, Katayama stayed, filling his time teaching local kids how to box and studying for his own certifications, because he was determined to see Machu Picchu before he left. When his story attracted a bit of national press, Alejandro Neira, Peru's culture minister, arranged for Katayama to have a special visit all on his own, accompanied by a few park guides, as a reward for his patience. And while just genuinely a nice thing to do for a man who came to be dubbed Peru's last tourist, I'm sure the government was aware of the buzz it would create in the international press. They're planning to begin reopening some of their cultural sites at limited capacity this month, and as a nation heavily dependent on their tourism industry, I'm sure they're hopeful that Katayama's dedication will encourage others to visit soon. Phone plan streams in standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See CricketWireless.com for details. We just got our closest ever look at a star being torn apart by a supermassive black hole, or spaghettified, as is actually the scientific term. The tidal disruption event, or TDE as it's known, was first observed in 2019, but some of the findings were just published today in the journal Monthly Notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. The event happened just over 215 million light years away, which obviously is quite far, but does mark the closest ever observation of such a phenomenon, allowing astronomers to study it in unprecedented detail and starting earlier than ever before. The TDE, first observed by the Zwicky Transient Facility in California on September 19th, 2019, was given the designation AT-2019-QIZ, and quoting Sci-Fi's Bad Astronomy, "...the explosion grew in brightness over several weeks, reaching its peak on the 8th of October, 2019. At that point, it was blasting out 10 billion times the energy the Sun does, about as much as its entire host galaxy." The black hole in the center of the host galaxy probably has a mass about a million times the sun's. About the same or a bit less than Sagittarius A star, the supermassive black hole in the center of our Milky Way. The way the event behaved indicates the star itself was probably much like the sun. For a star and black hole like that, the star would have to get within 70 million kilometers of the black hole to get shredded. That's roughly half the distance of the Earth to the Sun, which is close. And the black hole itself is only about 6 million kilometers across. Continuing to quote further, the material ripped from the star would then be stretched into a thin stream. Astronomers call this spaghettification, which then whipped around the black hole at tremendous speed. Some of that material went all the way around the black hole and slammed into the stream still falling in from the star. That creates a big blast of light. At the same time, much of it fell into a disk around the black hole. Parts of this disk revolve around the black hole at nearly the speed of light, while other parts are slower. The friction generated from this creates a lot of energy, and also powered a huge outburst of material expanding away from the black hole. The physics is a tad complicated, shockingly, but this expanding bubble created most of the optical light seen. Higher energy light like ultraviolet and x-rays are generated close into the black hole, but hits this expanding material and is absorbed by it. As the cloud of material expands, it gets more tenuous, eventually allowing that light to escape. That allows astronomers to see what's going on in both the huge bubble as well as right around the black hole. End quote. The authors of the paper also note that it's possible the entire star wasn't actually blown apart, that a quarter of it may still be out there, orbiting the black hole as a stellar ball of gas. And because of how much more information is being confirmed and gleaned from this event, the astronomers called it the Rosetta Stone of tidal disruption events. Although, with everything being learned from this Rosetta Stone, and as the European Southern Observatory's extremely large telescope begins operating in the coming years, astronomers may be able to observe another TDE even earlier and in even more detail, continuing to solve many of the mysteries surrounding black holes. Mischief spelled in all caps and without any vowels so that you know they're cool, is the elusive company behind many of the viral stunts from the last year or so, like performing all of The Office via Slack, selling Nike Air Maxes filled with holy water, and an app for investing based on Zodiac signs. Now, they have just introduced their latest project, a scheme for paying TikTokers to protest against many of the same brands that pay TikTokers. Yes, they are basically making a stink about paid promotions via running a paid promotion. They say they're different from typical influencer marketing in two ways. First, Anyone can participate. You don't have to be signed with an agency and then negotiate a contract for the deal. Just use one of their custom sounds, more on that in a minute, and send them proof that you hit one of their view count thresholds, and then they'll send you a check. And second, they're not promoting a product, they're attacking other companies. Large corporations, mostly, ones with some of the worst, most unethical practices, according to Mischief. So how it works is anyone on TikTok is invited to use one of the anti-advertising advertising advertising clubs custom sounds to make a TikTok, and if that TikTok gets enough views, they can submit it to the company for a check, ranging from $10 to $20,000 based on the number of views you get and which sounds you use. The contents of the sounds is where the real protest element comes in. They are attack ads for Amazon, Facebook, Influencer favorite Fashion Nova, Tesla, Comcast, the NFL, Palantir, Purdue Pharma, and TikTok itself. Gripes with the companies range from stifling diverse content, TikTok, to unethical labor practices, Tesla, Amazon, and Fashion Nova, and profiting off the opioid crisis, Purdue Pharma. Most of the sounds are parodies of popular songs that explain what it is they are attacking the company for. Here's the one from Facebook, which is the most well done one that I can play for you without having to mark this episode as explicit. Fake news. My Facebook feed. Took my own- here's what mischief wrote in the manifesto for the anti-ad ad ad club quote the idea of selling out once such a hot button has become so passe that it's hard to remember what it ever meant on social platforms selling out is aspirational Hawking cheap direct-to-landfill products is a sign of institutional success and a stamp of approval. Audiences, steeped in a culture that leads kindergartners to overwhelmingly list YouTuber in response to the classic, what do you want to be when you grow up, are thoroughly unalienated by sponsorship, and perhaps even compelled by it. We've gone from no one wanting to sell out to everyone wanting to sell out. The ability to sell out, perhaps ironically, is not democratized. Not everyone is sufficiently influential to be blessed by the giant brand hand in the sky. Still, we all buy products. If we cannot become paid shills for brands, we can at least attack them in unison. Anti-Advertising Advertising Club is dedicated to reversing the flow of attention economy juice through the top of the funnel pipeline. If every user's desire is to sell out, we'll happily enable that impulse if it means we can punch at the companies doing the buying." End quote. I have just been waiting for the influencer bubble to burst, and while I know this alone isn't going to do it, it's still really interesting to watch, and you know, if it takes off enough, it might lead some young influencers to deeply consider the type of economy they've become so steeped in, or at least learn a little bit about the brands they use or aspire to work with. And that's not to say that no young people are aware of those things. Many of them are. They just also have to pay the bills in a time when it's increasingly difficult to do so and have found a way to do it that may not always feel ethically great, but works for now. And when you think of it that way, being a TikTok influencer isn't so different from a lot of the other jobs young people have sludged through in their early adult years over the generations, which also got glorified by some people, but of course usually as hard work and paying dues instead of as alternately lazy and status-seeking. I don't know, the world's in a weird place of change right now, and I'm grateful to chaotic, ironic campaigns like the Anti-Ad Ad Club that at least make us stop and think for a minute, until the next TikTok comes up on our screens. That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I'm Jackson Bird, and I am going to go try to hack into Google Maps and see what happens to society if I can successfully add a Loch Ness Monster to Lake Michigan. I hope you have a good rest of your day. I will talk to you again tomorrow.